Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nation's class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor. This is class number 29. We are at February 21st, 2010. And we're going to start tonight with Proverbs chapter 12, verse 9. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 9. And the verse reads, Better off is a lowly one who serves for his keep than a pompous one who lacks bread. Let me read it one more time. Better off is a lonely, a lowly one, excuse me, L-O-W-L-Y, lowly one, who serves for his keep than a pompous one who lacks bread. Now, this is the Art Scroll translation. Uh, I have a different translation that, that takes it a slightly different way. We'll talk about that in a minute, but let's talk, uh, talk through this one. First thing we want to consider are what are the questions? Um, what questions would we want to ask around this verse in order to understand fully what the verse is, is trying to teach us? Better off is a lowly one who serves for his keep than a pompous one who lacks bread. Any thoughts on questions? So let me suggest a couple, and you may be typing something. Um, the first question that comes to mind, okay, thank you, is what's a lowly one? Who, who is a lowly one? I mean, we've, I'm not sure that we have heard that term described yet in Proverbs. Uh, and then by contrast, uh, who's a pompous one? And why does the verse talk about a lowly one who quote, serves for his keep, unquote. What's the verse trying to tell us with that phrase? And then finally, what does the first half have to do with the second half? Because the first half is talking about what the lowly one does, but the second half is talking about what the pompous one lacks. So it doesn't seem like there's a clear connection here. Um, so let's see if we can unravel this a little bit. So, uh, you've suggested humble as a, a definition for lowly. Um, that could be true. I took a slightly different approach. Um, humble can be seen as, I suppose, uh, the, the way that uh, other people view you, but I tend to think of humble as a person who really understands their true place in the universe. It's not a, not a false humility kind of thing like, oh shucks, you know, I'm not really good at anything, that kind of thing. But a person who really understands what their true place is uh, in, in the world and in the universe. Um, uh, Moses was considered to be the most humble man who ever lived. Uh, now, he clearly knew that he had knowledge uh, because he had to turn around and give it to the people. But my understanding of what that meant was that he really understood uh, his, his spot, so to speak, in the world. That he was, um, you know, virtually nothing in comparison to uh, the wisdom of Hashem. He didn't, uh, it wasn't, I don't think, a, a, as I understand it, a false humility. 
uh, he, he very clearly understood what his own capabilities were, but he put those in the context of uh, the Almighty and, you know, anything that we have uh, pales in comparison there. But I took a slightly uh, different approach. This is Proverbs chapter 12, verse 9. Chapter 12, verse 9. And I'm, I'm going to suggest that a lowly one is a person who is seen as poor or of a lower class status in the eyes of other people. Not exactly a state that most of us would particularly aspire to find ourselves in. Um, so that's, that's my, my working hypothesis. A lowly one would be one who other people would look at and say, oh, man, you know, he's not very well off or he's kind of in a lower class. They might look down upon him, uh, you know, because of uh, who he is or the, the status that he's in. Now, I'd also like to suggest that a pompous one is a person who's arrogant, somebody who's full of themselves, somebody who has a really overblown opinion of himself, and who makes that opinion known rather loudly and publicly uh, through their actions. So... It's a little different than arrogant in that it has the, the sense of, of um, making a lot of one's self fairly noisily in a, in, a, uh, in a public way. And then, as a third definition, I'd like to suggest that a person who serves for his keep means someone who serves other people in order to pay for his room and food. In other words, his room and food is his keep. So it's someone who serves other people in order to pay for that. So if we go on the basis of those definitions, the verse is saying that it's better to be of lowly status in the eyes of others and serve others in order to have room and food than it is to be arrogantly full of yourself and lack bread. So, we look at that and say, well, okay, now what? I mean, isn't that pretty obvious? I mean, mo wouldn't most of us rather act as servants to others than starve? So it seems like King Solomon must be telling us something else, because generally speaking, we wouldn't expect him to tell us stuff that's really obvious. So I will suggest that the verse is actually going deeper than that. A lowly one describes how others view a person. And the man or woman of Proverbs is not concerned with how others view him or her. They don't run their lives on that basis. To the, to the person of Proverbs, the person living the Mishle life, the Proverbs life, to that person, life is practical. If he's rich, fine. He'll use that money wisely as a tool to help him reach the real good, which is the study of Torah and character development and personal development. On the other hand, if he's poor, he'll do what he needs to survive, and he'll do his best to study Torah and work on his character and on uh, the perfection of his soul, despite his economic situation. So to him, the end goal is the learning and the growth not the wealth or the lack of it. He's not worried about what other people think of his economic status. 
By contrast, a pompous one is all about how he is perceived. I mean, that's his life. He would rather hold that view and be hungry than to lower himself to serve others and be able to eat. So how he is viewed by other people is the most important thing to him. So it seems that the verse is telling us that it's better to be practical than to be caught up in how you look to other people. It's better to be a servant and eat than to be pompous and starve. In the real life of Mishle, in the life of Proverbs, you deal with the physical world practically, not emotionally, where you don't, you don't lead with that. The person in the first half of the, of the verse is dealing with the realities of the physical world on a practical level, practically. The person in the second half is ignoring the realities of the world and is coming at life emotionally. And the life of Mishle, the life of, of the person of Proverbs, is the life of the first person, not the second. Okay, any questions up till now? Okay, so now there is a different translation. Uh, Judaica Press translates the verse a little bit differently, and they translate it as, Better is he who is lightly esteemed, but is a slave to himself, than one who is honored, but lacks bread. Better is he who is lightly esteemed, but is a slave to himself, than one who is honored, but lacks bread. So in this case, lightly esteemed would suggest a lack of honor by other people, or according to Rashi, a lack of honor in his own eyes. And the phrase, is a slave to himself, may suggest that he has learned to make his body do his bidding perhaps both through work and in the control of his own desires. In other words, he may not be held in high honor by others, but he works to provide for his needs and he has control over his body and his needs, not the other way around. His body and his needs don't control him. Now, he who is honored, uh, the second half says, you know, uh, better is the person in the first half than one who is honored but lacks bread. So a person who is honored is someone who gets accolades from others, recognition and so forth, but he in this case apparently does not work and therefore lacks bread. So the verse is telling us that the person in the first half is better than the person in the second half. Honor from other people is an intangible thing. It can also be very, very fleeting. If a person seeks it, that's an emotional desire. Uh, and, and anybody who's seeking honor doesn't get it with regard to reality. Uh, because a person who really understood reality would not be seeking honor because they would realize that it doesn't mean anything. Um, in, in the world, in the context of uh, of Torah and the world of Proverbs. The body requires physical nourishment to survive. It doesn't require honor to survive, but it does require physical nourishment. So it's better to eat in order to sustain one's physical body, which then allows a person to engage in the real good, which is the study of Torah and the perfection of the soul, 
than it is to starve one's physical body in favor of an emotional satisfaction, the honor, that doesn't lead them to perfection. Okay? Any questions on this verse? Okay. I'll uh, again take no response or delayed response as a no. Uh, but if you do have a question, uh, feel free to, to pop it out there and I'll uh, do my best to answer it. So let's move on to uh, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 10. And the verse reads, A righteous man knows his animal's soul, but the mercies of the wicked are cruel. A righteous man knows his animal's soul, but the mercies of the wicked are cruel. Okay? Okay, and let me pause, Terry and Laurie. You mentioned that you were thinking that it went deeper than that. Can you elaborate on which part? And if you have a microphone hooked up on uh, uh, your computer, you are uh, welcome to use that as well. pause to give you time to uh, respond. I think all you need to do if you have a microphone and you want to speak is to press the talk now button. It should be at the bottom of your screen. Is there anything else you wanted to say about uh, about the previous verse or how deep that goes? Okay, so you've said like a pompous person has no depth. Um, I don't know that we can read that from the verse because it seems to be focused on a, the, the characteristic in the second half uh, where it says, um, you know, better off the lowly one of scriptures keep than a pompous one who lacks bread. We really only know they have two things about the person that they're pompous and they lack bread. Now the pompousness, if that's a word, is going to refer to the, um, the arrogance uh, that they have. And it could be that in some ways they could be uh, a very shallow person or they could be somebody who has you know, knowledge in certain areas but has this character flaw where they really need to uh, be recognized and, you know, uh, loudly and publicly proclaim that they are really cool or really great or uh, something along that line. So I think all we can do is read from that one description, the pompousness, 
to figure out what the person is like. Uh, now, someone who is is doing that, who really is pompous and has to be publicly acknowledged and proclaimed and everybody needs to bow down to him and so forth, clearly that's coming from an emotional place and, you know, as a at its extreme becomes quite childish. Uh, and so we could look at a person like that and say, gee, you know, why don't they like grow up and get a life? Uh, so we could draw some conclusions about their emotional state from that because clearly they're operating from their emotions in a way that's very open and public. Uh, so it could indicate uh, a lack of intellectual depth uh, or certainly in that area, a lack of depth of understanding about their own emotions and the consequences of those emotions. Okay. So, moving on to verse 10. A righteous man knows his animal's soul, but the mercies of the wicked are cruel. Any questions that you can think of with regard to that verse? A righteous man knows his animal's soul, but the mercies of the wicked are cruel. So here are a couple to consider. First of all, what does it mean to know an animal's soul? I mean, it says a righteous man does that. He knows an animal's soul. What does it mean to know an animal's soul? And how does a righteous person know this? How does that even happen? And then the second half refers to the mercies of the wicked. Well, what are the mercies of the wicked? Seems like a little bit of a, of a contradiction there in terms. And it says the mercies of the wicked are cruel. Why is that? Why are they cruel? So, let me start with looking at a righteous man. We've talked about this idea before that a righteous person has a uh, much more global view of the world. Uh, they are uh, not self-centered. Their life does not revolve around themselves, except, you know, for practicality purposes. But uh, they're thinking about other people. They're thinking about how they can be a benefit to the community, how what they does affects the community or the society or whatever their sphere of influence and effect might be. So they're thinking about benefits of others. Now, to know an animal's soul is to fully understand the animal and its needs. Uh, I don't think the verse is suggesting that an animal's soul is the same as a human soul or anything like that, but that it's getting at, to know an animal's soul, you really have to understand that animal, its needs, uh, and you know how it operates most effectively uh, in its own environment. And certain animals have certain needs. I mean, uh, if you think about what a dog likes, I mean, a dog likes to eat, it likes to go for a walk, it likes to run around, likes to chase a ball, likes to have its ears scratched, likes to sleep. Um, you know, it's, a, it's a, a fairly straightforward life. 
A cow may need to be, you know, out in a pasture, uh, good availability to fresh grass, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, a goat or a lamb may have uh, different needs. Uh, if you've ever been around, uh, you know, goats, they have, uh, I think, a high, as I understand it, a high affinity for uh, companionship, so they will follow you around like a, like a dog will. Um, so every animal has its own needs and its own situation. Now, um, the, the righteous person is sensitive to the needs of other people, and the righteous person is also sensitive to the individual needs of uh, his animals. Uh, he recognizes, oh, this one needs this, this one needs that, this one needs the other thing. Remember, the righteous person thinks in terms of benefits of others and others being part of God's creation, and uh, animals are part of that creation as well. Uh, so the righteous person will be sensitive to the needs of his animals and understand how that animal operates the best. I mean, he might keep his dog you know, in the living room, but he wouldn't keep his cow in the living room because that's not where it needs to be in order to uh, flourish uh, and so forth. So he'll be sensitive to the needs even down to the individual issues of a particular animal, not just necessarily uh, a whole class of that animal. So the righteous person is going to know and understand the animal's nature and is going to act to ensure uh, that that animal's uh, needs are met. Uh, so again, in the same way that he is thoughtful and considerate and kind of other people, he'll be thoughtful and considerate and kind uh, around animals. Uh, okay, let me pause. Um, You made the comment, you know how to control yourself, and you know Hashem is in control. Okay, I'm not sure what that comment refers to, so maybe you can help me out with that one. Uh, and we need to have compassion on animals, uh, and wicked ones don't care or are cruel. That's true. We, uh, we, we do need to have uh, compassion for animals, and, you know, understand what, uh, what their particular needs are and their situation is, and it would be a very, uh, I think, terrible thing to intentionally frustrate an animal, to put it in a situation where, you know, it can't uh, get its needs met or uh, is very contrary to its nature. So that's what the righteous person does. The righteous person is aware of these things. He knows his animal's soul. He knows the nature of that animal, what that animal needs, and then he'll take steps to make sure the animal gets that. Now, by contrast, the wicked, as we've discussed, are self-centered. They don't think in holistic terms. They don't think in global terms, in terms of helping the world. They, they, they don't think in terms of providing benefits uh, to other people. Um, so they have not thought about or trained themselves in how to think through the right way to do something that is truly for another person's benefit. Now this distinction is really important here because some people think they're doing something for another person's benefit 
But if they don't have the wisdom and insight to truly recognize how to help the person, they can actually do a lot of damage. For example, in, uh, in a psychological case, if a person is truly hurting deeply emotionally and an untrained person comes along and tries to help them and doesn't know what they're doing, uh, that person could really hurt the first person and, and make the situation even worse for them. Uh, or uh, another example might be, uh, uh, might be business. Um, if someone needs help to get their business going uh, or to get their marketing done correctly or get the right financing and you try to help them when you truly don't know what you're doing, you could ruin them. So, in the case of the wicked, even their mercies, even when they are trying to be kind to someone, those mercies are cruel because they won't really help the person, because the wicked have not thought through how to truly do something for another person's benefit. Remember, they don't know how to analyze a situation, or another person, or much less a beast, and so their ideas of helping will be flawed. And so their mercies, their kindnesses, are cruel because they will actually hurt more than they will help. Now, Terry and Laurie, you said we, you thought uh, we were referring to our, uh, our animal soulish part. No, this is talking really, as I understand it, about an animal, a separate animal, not not the, uh, the, the soul of a person. And, and the first half is talking about that. The second half, I don't think, is even limiting itself to the treatment of animals. It's saying the mercies of the wicked are cruel. That when a wicked person tries to do something that they think is merciful or helpful for another person, for an animal, whatever, that it's going to end up being cruel because they don't know, they have not trained themselves in how to help uh, in that kind of a situation. So now, if we, if we, let me pause and see, let me know if you have a question on that. Where I would go from here then is ask, okay, what's the first half have to do with the second half? The first half says, a righteous man knows his animal's soul, the second half says, well, the mercies of the wicked are cruel. It's like, well, uh, what is this? You know, it's not exactly a, you know, uh, a, a, a clear comparison. You, you would think it would say something like, a righteous man knows his animal's soul and a wicked person doesn't. Um, but that's not what, what the verse is saying. I think what the verse is telling us is how the training of the mind reflects in the actions that a person does. So for the righteous, they are so well trained and so sensitive to and so compassionate to the needs of others that they apply those same principles even to their animals. They've just got that sensitivity so that that training of the mind, that focus on the benefits of others and where they come from, extends even to their animals. And so they get to know their animal's soul, the nature of that animal, and how they can best help it. While the wicked are so untrained in being able to help 
anyone but themselves and so self-centered that even when they try to do mercies for someone or something or some animal or whatever, those mercies are cruel because they will uh, potentially end up hurting the other person or the animal or uh, whatever they think they're bestowing their mercy upon. Okay? Does it make sense? Any questions on this verse? Okay, good. Okay. Oh, now we get to one, not that they all aren't fun, but uh, one where I, it was exceptionally uh, interesting to me to, to dig through this one. Uh, Proverbs 12, chapter, sorry, chapter 12, verse 11. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11, and it reads like this. He who tills his land will be sated with bread, but he who pursues empty things lacks heart. He who tills his land will be sated uh, with bread, but he who pursues empty things lacks heart. Sated, I understand, to mean satisfied with, filled with, filled to the point of satiation. So he who tills his land will be sated with bread, but he who pursues empty things lacks heart. So, what kind of questions might we ask about that verse? He who tills his land will be sated with bread, but he who pursues empty things lacks heart. Any thoughts on questions? Well, let me start with a couple. And then I think some others will, will appear as we go along. First of all, the second half says, he who pursues empty things. What are empty things? Um, we need to kind of define what, what that term means. It's a, it's a rather unusual term. And, if they're empty things, why would someone pursue them? And what does it mean to lack heart? So we've got several things to, to define or figure out in the second half. And then, what does the first half have to do with the second half? They don't seem to even be talking about the same thing. One's talking about tilling land and getting bread. The other's talking about pursuing empty things and lacking heart. So let's look at the first half. Okay, uh, I'm just reading your comment. Uh, he who works is fulfilled and vanity is empty. Okay? Well, we're going to have to ask ourselves... So why did King Solomon juxtapose these two things in this verse? Because usually he's got something where he's comparing A against B. Uh, you know, the righteous versus the wicked, or the wise versus the fool, or uh, that type of thing. So we've got to figure out what's going on and why he would put those two things opposite each other. So let's look at the first half. 
He who tills his land will be sated with bread. Now, that seems pretty straightforward. I mean, if you work your field or do some kind of gainful employment, you will have bread to eat so that you're physically satisfied. So, okay, then you would think that the second half would read, he who doesn't till his land will go hungry. In other words, if you work, you'll eat, and if you don't work, you won't eat. But that's not what the verse says. So, I want to suggest that King Solomon must be telling us something else. He must be focusing in on some element of the first half, the he who tills his land will be sated with bread, some element of that that is not the obvious one. Because the issue that he raises in the second half doesn't seem to obviously contrast with the first half. So let's just set that in uh, set that on the shelf for a minute, kind of keep it in mind, and let's take a look at the second half. He who pursues empty things. Now I understand, uh, I believe one translation translates empty things as vanities, and you mentioned that in your uh, in your comment. So what are empty things? Well, they would be things of no value, or things that have no lasting value. And in fact, to be a little more precise, I would define empty things as things that have no value in contributing to a life of wisdom and knowledge. I mean, we've talked at length about wisdom and knowledge uh, having, you know, huge value in life. So, I would say empty things are those that have no value in contributing to a life full of wisdom and knowledge. Now, those could be the pursuit of riches, or the pursuit of fame, or the pursuit of the physical pleasures just for the sake of the physical pleasures. Uh, and let me just point out, we want to keep in mind there is nothing wrong with the physical pleasures per se. Uh, you know, things that aren't either halakhically prohibited to us or harmful to us uh, are okay generally to partake of. If it's not harmful, it's not addictive, and it's not halakhically prohibited, um, then, you know, those could be legitimate pleasures. But if a person's life is focused around the physical pleasures, like that's the be-all and end-all of life to him, then that's a mistake. Because the physical pleasures will never ultimately satisfy the nature of man. A person who chases after physical pleasures will have a very fruitless search. Uh, because they'll try one thing, and yeah, it's okay for a minute, but then it goes away, and they try another thing, and they keep moving from thing to thing, trying to find something that's going to provide them real lasting satisfaction. And they won't find it in the physical world. Uh, the physical pleasures come, and the physical pleasures go. That's not bad. It just is. That's just the way they are. You know, you eat a good meal, and then, okay, you know, four or five hours later, you're hungry again. Uh, you go on vacation, you have a nice time, but gee, now I'm back at work. Um, you know, those kinds of things uh, are, are temporal. What really satisfies the nature of man is being involved in the world of ideas uh, and the world of learning. Uh, okay, and Terry and Laura, you said it seems it is dependent on what kind of work. Uh, not sure which part you're referring to when you say that it is dependent. Uh, 
sorry if I'm not following clearly what you're saying there. Maybe you could elaborate just a little bit. In the meantime, let me elaborate just a little bit. For example, with regard to the pleasures, if someone takes a break from their work because they need a break, and they decide to go play ball, then, you know, that's a legitimate break, and it could give the person the rest and the recharge that they need in order to go back and continue their work or their learning or whatever it might be. In fact, it could be better for them than continuing, let's say a person is, is involved in, in learning and feels like they need a break, and so they go out and play ball. It could be better for them than continuing to force themselves to learn at that point. That depends, and you have to know yourself. But depending on the person, they may need that break. But if a person spent their entire life playing ball, and following ball playing became the be-all and end-all of their lives, then I would submit that they're pursuing empty things. It's not that ball playing in and of itself is bad. It's that they are focused on something that is not the ultimate good for them. Okay. Let me catch up on your comment. Uh, maybe the difference between working as a teacher or farmer versus one of uh, uh, modeling or something fleeting. One is fulfilling, the other is dependent on beauty and fame. Oh, okay, I understand what you're saying. Uh, th that's a good point. Um, a, a person involved in an occupation that is focused on fantasies is going to have a more difficult time uh, in life than a person whose occupation is focused more on realities. Farming and growing crops uh, or making cabinets. Uh, you know, you're, in re you're doing something in reality with the physical world. Uh, but if I'm involved in modeling or some other kind of thing that uh, focuses on the fantasy world, just being involved in that occupation is likely going to affect my thinking. Uh, because I'm spending a whole lot of mental energy focused in that area trying to get it absolutely right without realizing that what am I doing? I'm focusing all my energies on something that is of no value. So, yes, I think that's, uh, that's very true. Uh, it will make a difference what kind of work you choose to do, and that would be a very important thing to consider in choosing a line of work. Um, you know, uh, is it... Uh, something that's in line with reality that is consistent with my Torah values? Uh, is it something that's going to allow me the time to be able to be involved in, uh, in learning? Uh, so, very good point. Now, the verse talks about he who pursues empty things lacks heart. So what does it mean to lack heart? Well, as we've stated before, in the days when these Proverbs were written, heart referred to the mind. So one who lacks heart lacks the ability to think clearly. I mean, why would someone pursue empty things, things that are of no lasting value, if he could think clearly and see reality clearly? Uh, it would seem that by definition, he must be lacking in thinking if he's busy pursuing empty things. Otherwise, why would you do that? So there's got to be something missing in the thinking process 
And so it's telling us that person lacks heart, has um, a, uh, a, a lack of, of the ability to think through these things clearly. Okay? Okay, and you said, um, isn't Judaism somewhat based on working on being in touch with the natural world? So let me take those as two separate questions. Um, is Judaism somewhat based on working? Yes. The idea of someone closeted away just in learning uh, all the time and not being out in the physical world uh, is not the Torah ideal. Uh, the Torah ideal, as I understand it, is a combination of work and learning. So you are out in the world in one respect or another, involved in an occupation, providing for your needs, and that serves as a means to the real good, which is to be involved in the world of learning and ideas. Now, exactly, it's a balance. You're, you're absolutely right. Now, the thing that you alluded to in the second part of your comment uh, is is it based on being in touch with the natural world? Uh, that is a little different. Um, I mean, certainly occupations that keep you in touch with uh, natural cycles, like farming, agriculture, raising sheep, those kinds of things, uh, there are some advantages to those kinds of things because you are continually in touch with the physical world and watching the cycle of life, and, and you learn from doing that. That does not mean that it is out of touch with Judaism to be a stockbroker or a lawyer or some occupation where you are dealing with more conceptual things. Uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with those things uh, to the best of my knowledge. If you were involved in an occupation that you know, inherently uh, goes against uh, the, the kinds of things that you know, Torah would be about, uh, that's a problem. Uh, so that you would have to look at very carefully and decide, you know, do I want to be in this occupation? And what does this mean for my soul? Because when you are in a particular occupation and focused on particular things, what you focus on and the problems and situations and whatever that you have to deal with uh, can have an impact on your soul. And so you would want to carefully I think select that so that you have the best possibility of being in an environment that supports uh, positive character values and reinforces those as to uh, as opposed to uh, being someplace where that wouldn't be the case. Okay. Any other questions up to this point? Okay. So we've talked about what the first half refers to and what the second half refers to but then we've still got this pesky question how does the first half relate to the second half he who tills his land will be sated with bread but he who pursues empty things lacks heart what is King Solomon trying to tell us here by making this particular contrast and I see another problem in here and that's this the first half says he who tills his land will be sated with bread. So, what's the form of the phrase? It's action produces result. The action's tilling the land, 
the result is that the person is saved with bread. So we have, if we look at it as kind of a formula basis, the first part of the verse is, you do this action, you get this result. But now look at the second half. It says, he who pursues empty things lacks heart. Well, that seems to be a different form. That seems to be this action indicates a lack of ability to think clearly. So it's not action produces result, it's action indicates characteristic. So how can you have one in the first half and one in the second half? Well, what's the, the comparison there between those two? So I will suggest the following. I'll suggest that the form of each side of the verse is actually action produces result. So we have in the first half, he who tills the ground, that is, he who does a clear and rational action, and we know that's a clear and rational action to till the ground because we know that tilling the ground is necessary to produce crops that we eat and we all need food. So he who does a clear and rational action gets a positive and beneficial result. That is, he's sated with bread. In the second half, again, let me read it. He who pursues empty things lacks heart. I'll suggest it is saying he who pursues empty things gets an undesirable result. That is lack of heart or distorted thinking. In other words, I'm suggesting the verse is not saying that the pursuit of empty things is caused by the distorted thinking, but that distorted thinking is a result of pursuing empty things. How does that work? When you pursue empty things, let's say the pursuit of wealth for wealth's sake, or the pursuit of power or fame, you are focusing your attention and your energy around things that are not in line with reality. They are not the true good for man, as we've discussed in these classes. Uh, the true good for man being the, the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge and, and being involved in the world of ideas and growth and the perfection of the soul. So as you put your energy and attention on those empty things, you begin to think in those terms rather than in terms of reality and the true good for man. You get caught up in them, just like if you're involved in, a, in an occupation that deals with fantasies. You get caught up in all that stuff and the types of distorted thinking that they represent. And that leads your mind to thinking that way. So the pursuit of empty things will result in distorted thinking. So now we have some balance here. The first half says, he who tills his land will be sated with bread. Action produces result. And in the second half, we have he who pursues empty things lacks heart or uh, lacks the ability to think clearly. Again, we have action produces result. So the verse is telling us the practical results of what you pursue. If you pursue practical actions, you'll get beneficial results. If you pursue things that are of no value, you'll end up with non-beneficial results in your own thinking process. Okay? Any questions up till this point? Good, I'm glad you're finding this helpful. Okay, I have one more question. 
and it's one that started to bother me when I got this far in the analysis. And I hope I hope you're seeing now kind of not only the 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 result of what we're finding out from the verse, but also how we're getting there. So we started with two things that didn't seem to match up, and we defined each of them individually. The, the first half, we figured out what that said, then we look at what we think the second half said, and then we started to look at, okay, how do they relate, and at first they seemed to be of different forms, and then we started looking at, well, wait a minute, maybe the second half is really of the same form, but it's saying that not that um, lacking heart causes you to pursue empty things, but empty, pursuing empty things will result in lack of heart. Now we've got things, you know, that are reasonably lined up here, and it starts to look like the analysis is relatively complete. So that's important to see the methodology here, because this is the methodology we use in analyzing Proverbs, and the more that you learn this methodology, uh, then that starts to carry over into other areas of your life and uh, you can start using this in, in uh, ideas and situations that you, you run into. So there's one more question that bothers me and this is what it is. The first half talks about a practical physical benefit. You get sated with bread. Okay, You till the ground, you get sated with bread. It doesn't seem to refer to anything with regard to your thinking process. But by contrast, the second half talks about the effect of an action on your thinking process. So why does one course of action apparently not affect your thinking process while the other one does? In other words, the person in the first half of the verse is doing a very rational, practical action, but we don't see from the verse that it's affecting his thinking process in any way. Instead, he's getting a physical result. He gets bread. The second person, the person in the second half, is doing an action, but they are getting a negative effect on their thinking process. And somehow that didn't seem to line up to me. And here is what I will suggest as a solution. When you simply do a correct physical action, you get the result. Just doing actions does not improve your thinking. It may produce positive and desirable results, but doing the action just in and of itself will not improve your thinking. A farmer who knows enough to till his field every day will not automatically become a thinker just because he does that. In order to become a thinker, he has to engage in the process of thinking. He has to engage with the ideas, engage his mind with those ideas, work them through, think about consequences, look at his emotions, analyze his personality, and all of that in order to affect his thinking process. Just tilling a field only produces bread. It does not affect the thinking process. However, the person who pursues empty things will damage their thinking process. The pursuit of empty things will cause him to focus on those things, and that will result in that lack of heart, that, that distorted or lack of ability to think clearly. In other words, I think the verse is telling us that someone who just does correct actions won't improve their thinking, 
but someone who pursues empty actions or vanities will damage his thinking. That pursuit will cause him to go downward. It won't be neutral. It's not like, well, you know, if you do right acts, you get right results, and if you do wrong acts, you get wrong results. Right acts will get you the, the desirable results, but they won't improve your thinking. Wrong acts will get you the wrong results and simultaneously will damage your thinking. The pursuit itself of the empty things will cause damage because the pursuit itself involves the mind. So, in that sense, the verse is telling us that correct actions won't turn you into a thinker, but pursuing incorrect actions will damage your thinking ability. So in order to be a thinker, you have to be actively engaged in learning. But going, so going down the correct action route just gets you the correct results. Going down the incorrect action results, or going down the incorrect action route gets you not only negative results, but it damages your thinking process. Okay? Any questions on this point? So we see that, that by asking, in terms of methodology, by asking ourselves the questions of, okay, what does this mean and why does King Solomon juxtapose these things together and how can we understand this in a way that makes sense to us uh, we, we open up new ideas and new opportunities because we have to kind of dig under the surface to say, well, why would he have said it that way? Or why did he, he create this particular comparison? Um, and uh, that then allows us to find uh, a deeper meaning in the, uh, in the verse. Okay? Any other questions? If not, then we will stop here for the evening, and I thank you for joining me.